Greetings, Veritas listeners around the world. This is Mel Hostelrick, your host at VeritasRadio.com, reminding you of two great offers, two limited time offers. The first one is get four months for the price of three when you subscribe to a recurrent Veritas subscription. And the second offer, subscribe to Veritas for two years and receive one full year of Sanitas with great life-saving interviews. Three full seasons of Sanitas when you buy a two-year subscription of Veritas. These offers are only available until midnight, December 31st. So don't wait, take action now and begin the year the right way with truth and health. Go to VeritasRadio.com, click on the subscribe button for more information. You will receive your login immediately. Thank you. And now, back to this week's program. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. What is best known about the UFO events of October 1973 is the Pascagoula abduction account of Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker. It began as an extremely credible report, but unlike many reports, intensive research has uncovered a number of additional reports of UFO sightings in the area at around the same time. This number continues to grow, and more will be discussed tonight. This has added to its credibility, and because of this, it has been termed the best documented alien abduction account on record. But much is not known about many elements associated with this event. It had numerous unique aspects, such as that the instruments the beings appeared to use to scan the men resembled such modern devices as a computerized axial tomography CAT scan. Such unique factors are compared to additional reports from the same time. This may be the first report of a new type of abduction event. There may have been a second abduction by the same object at around the same time as Parker and Hickson's. Abductions appear to happen as single events, but this may have been extremely different than the first reported. And there may have even been several abduction attempts on the same night as the Pascagoula abduction. In addition, much happened the same time as the Pascagoula abduction, such as reports of close UFO encounters, a thunderous boom, and similar episodes that swarmed in to bewildered operators in many states across the USA. These events ushered in a massive UFO wave, possibly the largest wave ever experienced and possibly the last wave. The strange boom was no ordinary sound. It was one that, with the exception of the Krakatoa volcanic eruption of 1883, could be the most widespread audible sound ever recorded. It did not happen in some out-of-the-way place. It happened in the nation's vital centers. It was felt in Washington, D.C., over areas of the nation's highest population density, its heartland, and several vital cities. This sound was analyzed according to the latest NASA research on sounds. The boom was quite unnatural and remarkable in many ways. The width of the sound would mean that the object causing it would be many miles high in outer space and in a location where there should be no overpressure. However, there was a large area of overpressure, such that it broke windows in a swath over at least three states. 
but it appeared able to cause ground movement over a large area. It appeared to defy the laws of physics. Unlike most UFO-associated phenomena, where there is no hard scientific proof, this sound was recorded on two seismographs, which may provide scientific proof of the existence of anomalous UFO phenomena-associated events. What we did not discuss during our last interview with Calvin Parker will be discussed tonight. Get ready to find out what happened beyond Pascagoula, the rest of the amazing UFO abduction story. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy, MMS, EMP shield, solar, and EMP protection, rebounders, CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Dr. Irina Scott received her PhD from the University of Missouri in Physiology, did postdoctoral research at Cornell University, has been an assistant professor at St. Bonaventure University, and has done research and teaching at The Ohio State University, the University of Missouri, the University of Nevada, and at Battelle Memorial Institute. She worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency and the Aerospace Center in Satellite Photography, was a volunteer astronomer at The Ohio State University Radio Observatory, and has taken flying lessons. Her publications include books and works in scientific journals, magazines, newspapers, and she was a correspondent for Popular Mechanics magazine. She served on the MUFON Board of Directors and is a MUFON consultant in physiology and astronomy and a field investigator. And directly from somewhere close to Columbus, Ohio, I would like to welcome Dr. Irina Scott. Hello, Dr. Scott, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, and thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Well, you're coming again, but this is a totally different story or research and as I told you before we began, when I interviewed Calvin Parker in 2018, I, I tried to discuss as much as I could from his story. I thought there was nothing else. However, I recently found out there is much more to his story, and that's why you wrote a book titled Beyond Pascagoula. I'm looking forward to, to further dissecting Calvin Parker's account. But first, how did you get involved in this story? Well, I got involved for two reasons. One was is that I, uh, Philip Mantle published Calvin's book, and he also published mine. And uh, he was he wanted to interview people at Pascagoula, but he was in England in the UK and had an English accent and everything, and he wanted somebody over here on this side of the pond to do some interviewing. And so I was interviewing some of the other witnesses from Pascagoula, but there was another reason too. And that was that um, many, many, many years ago, and it 
I found out later it was exactly the same time as the Pascagoula abduction. Something happened in my family, and that was is that I was at the University of Missouri working on a PhD, and my mother was, and that was in Columbia, Missouri. My mother was in Columbus, Ohio, I mean in that area. And she called one night and said, did you hear that noise? And I started teasing her and um, harassing her and um, because she had always said that if she showed signs of senility, we should tell her so she knew. And so I told her, you know, go to the insane asylum and everything, jokingly. Um, because Columbus is like 600 miles away from where I was. And so um, then later, several days later, she called and said there was a huge UFO flap going on there. And that was interesting, too, because my mother is a skeptic. And so anyway, it, nothing was happening in Missouri that I knew about. So I forgot about it for years and years and years. And later I had moved back to Ohio and I was working at Ohio State University. And at that time they had a big newspaper room with actual newspapers. <clears throat> and for some reason I was in the library and just on impulse, I decided to go in and see if I could find when that sound was because I knew it was part of a flap, but I didn't remember the date or anything else. And so I looked in the newspaper room and there were many, many, many papers, and I thought, I will never find this. And so I guess just guessed roughly at the date and looked at a couple of newspapers, and I actually found an article about the sound. And so I had a date, and I could do more research. And for some reason, it kind of interested me because, for one thing, <laughs> it was a really odd thing for my mother to do. And um, so I started researching the sound, and a lot of people heard it but nobody knew what caused it. And I um, was going to put the information, write, do a write-up into the peer-reviewed peer um, scientific journal. I wasn't in UFOs then at all. And so a, a the state seismologist of Ohio contacted me about it, and he was quite interested too in you know, how the sound occurred and why nobody saw it or saw anything or knew what caused it. And he helped me with that, looking for seismograph stations and things. And then I did publish it in a scientific journal. But um, some UFO people in Ohio heard about it and wanted me to give a talk. And I met them, and that's how I got into ufology. And it was before I even paid attention to the Pascagoula abduction or anything. I was just interested in the sound, but it, for some reason it happened the same time as the abduction. So that's how I got into it for two reasons. Were other stories happening simultaneously while Parker and, and Hickson were going through their own? Um, well, at that time when it happened, I just wondered what was wrong with my mother. <laughs> I didn't pay attention, but yes, there was a whole lot of other things going on besides their abduction. Um, there was like a flap. It was maybe the largest flap ever of UFOs. Why do you think 1973 was so special? And I say this because I was five years old at the time, and some might think, well, you might not remember a lot. What happened to you when you were five? Well, I remember clearly 1973 because... Almost on a weekly basis, I would see my dad with a newspaper, and on the front page, there was something going on, a UFO, a light in the sky, 
uh, fishermen reporting things coming out in and out of the ocean. A, uh, a strange thing, uh, they used to call it the vampire of this specific city in the island where I grew up in Puerto Rico, and uh, cattle mutilation, so many things happening that year, not to mention Nixon being impeached, Watergate, Yankee poor, so many things happening around the world, but still this topic of UFOs made it to the front pages, even though many other things were happening around the world. Well, that's one thing I um, wondered about, and I just, I didn't make too much of it in the book, but um, there was, this was maybe the largest flap ever of UFOs, but there was also a lot going on. And what people didn't know is that almost nuclear war, and they had a DEFCON um, 3 alert which nobody declassified until recently, but which happened in um, October 1973. And um, so besides Watergate and Spiro Agnew and everything, oil embargo and everything else, there was also the possibility of nuclear war. And I didn't say too much about it. In fact, I said very little. But it this flap was concurrent with... Um, the possibility of having a nuclear war. And I always wondered if that, if there was any relationship between that, um, because like they've talked about how UFOs fly over missile bases and turn off the missiles or, you know, reprogram and things like that. I don't know, you know, for sure if it's proven, but, um, somebody had said that maybe the UFO flap was, a show of force when the world was about to have a nuclear war. And by the way, when I say Yom Kippur, I meant the Yom Kippur War of October of 73. And what you just said, it, wasn't that one of the few times in our history where DEFCON 3 was active and the, the rhetoric was really going all over the place with the Soviets and the United States? Yes, I, th I think there were only one or, I mean, two or three times. One was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the other time was this time. And um, But nobody knew about that because it was classified uh, about the deaf country and everything. It was just declassified a few years ago. But um, if Israel and the Arab nations got in a war, they were um, transporting nuclear weapons and if that if that happened, if either side sent a missile up, well, the Russia would um, um, defend the Arab countries, and the United States would defend Israel. And so there could be there was a possibility of a war, nuclear war, you know, <laughs> nuclear annihilation or something. Why is this case considered the only report anywhere in the world of this type of event? I don't know. Um, I speculate in the book that um, there's that um, object, I can't pronounce the name of a mua or something, that um, came through the solar system. That was the first instance that they actually calculated of a um, object coming from out of the solar system and going through our solar system and kind of, and you know, some people have speculated, maybe this was a spaceship, but, um, 
you know, I just speculated that maybe something like that happened in 1973, and nobody would have known it then because they didn't have the the mathematics to calculate it and everything. But that you know maybe something went through our solar system at that time, and surveyed Earth, and maybe that was a different thing than anything else because there were a number of people that said this was the largest flap ever. And so there was something unusual going on. And yeah, it's a difficult name to pronounce, the Oumuamua. Oumuamua, I believe that's how you pronounce it. And it's the first known interstellar object detected passing through this solar system. So you think that maybe some people speculate this is a natural object. Some people say that it's not. If we had something similar back in 1973 that had its own scouts, craft that were surveying the Earth at the time while it was passing. Is this what you speculate? Well, I was just speculating. I don't have any idea what of it's course. true, but I don't think we would have known it back then. And they did, they, you know, do know it now that something like that can happen. Now, most cases of abduction involve UFOs, but did I hear that this case involves USOs, unidentified submerged or submersible objects, how so? Um, this is complicated, but um, the abduction of of Calvin Parker and Charlie Hickson was an object that floated through the air, but their abduction was very unique because people, other people in Pascagoula are now talking about it, and we found... Um, Calvin had given a talk to um, at the Pascagoula Library, and it was on YouTube. And somebody wrote in and said, "Well, my parents were there and saw it." And that was a pretty odd thing to say. And Philip Mantle of Flying Disc Press got a hold of him and asked me to call the woman. Asked me to call him, the parents. And of the woman that said her parents were there. And I did. And so um, uh, they had been at the Pascagoula River on the other side at the same time as the abduction. And they had seen a strange object, too. And um, they were waiting there for her husband's boss to come and her husband and the supervisor were going out on a ship, so they were waiting by a pier. And they walked down this, after a while, uh, the woman had watched this object and thought it was strange. Its flight path and everything was very strange. And so um, uh, after they watched it for a while, her husband was a skeptic and said, oh, no, nothing like that could happen. And I talked to him first. But um, she, he walked down first and he was ahead of her, and she said something swimming came up to the pier right beside her, and she thought it looked like a person. And then they, that was about nine, and they went to the ship, and then she didn't come back until 12, which seems funny. And she was terrified and ran back, but she said she saw this thing that was um, swimming, and she was very, very emotional about it. So... Um, I talked to her several times because I was curious, and you, you tell how emotional she was. Then later, her husband became ill, and he died. And he had been a skeptic and said nothing happened, don't tell me about it, and everything like that. Well, before he died, 
um, he told her that they had been abducted and that these beings had, um, when it was over with, he saw these beings swimming through the water. Um, and then he went on a ventilator and he couldn't talk. And then unfortunately he died, but that was the first she had ever heard about an induction. And these seemed to be beings that were swimming. And then, um, the other thing is, is that Pascagoula made the national news twice, and one was the abduction. But the other thing was a, a USO, underwater um, submerged object sighting. And um, it made the national news with that, too. But this, the uh, USO was taken very seriously and investigated by the Navy. And not only did they investigate it, they sent two officers out. And the officers saw the thing, too, and watched it and thought it was very strange. Um, and this caused a lot of interest also. And the Navy viewed that as very serious because, I mean, there's this background of the war and everything that people might have not been too aware of. But there was also... Um, where this took place was by a um, the Huntington Eagles Ingalls shipyard, which is uh, the biggest Navy shipyard I think uh, there is. It was also near a nuclear installation that they didn't want anybody to know about. I think it was in conjunction with the shipyard. And also Kessler Air Force Base was there, which was training a lot of people. So it was in a secured, uh, you know, uh, important area. And at the same time as all this other possible war was going on. Um, and so they were very interested. But I commented in my book, the Navy took that very seriously. But the abduction was always ridiculed. And the abduction actually was closer to the facilities and the uh, USO sighting. And so if the USO sighting was that interesting it's and taken that seriously... I think the abduction should have been too. And I believe the United States government investigated the USOs, but the Air Force decided not to. Why do you think that was? Who did? The Air Force I'm, did not investigate the I'm, USOs. Who didn't? The Air Force, according to what I read here. Let's see. Uh, yeah. yeah. The government well, seriously investigated USO events, but the Air Force did not and even ridiculed it. I know. And that's what seems strange to me, but there seems to be a difference between the um, Navy and the Air Force because the Air Force, up until recently, up until this year actually, has always kind of ridiculed everything about UFOs and said they don't exist. Since then, they've sort of said maybe they do. But the Navy has always been a little bit more serious in their investigation. And in this case, they sent um officer out to investigate and took it a lot more seriously. And the officers, um, about 16 people saw the object, and all of them are dead except one, and I interviewed him. But um, one of the officers said it was really strange because when he held, this thing was underwater, and when they held an oar over it, it was like x-rays came out of it, and they could see right through the um, oar, but they didn't, it, it didn't cast a shadow on things. And he they both thought it was pretty weird and the Navy considered everything serious. 
but the Air Force had been um, ridiculing UFOs for many, many years and continued along that line. So I think there was a difference in the um, government agencies. And even today, I think one reason the um, government's saying maybe something is going on is because of the Navy and um, the Nabbits and all that, uh, the Tic Tac object mm -hmm. and all that, because um, I don't think they ever said that from the Air Force. A quick parenthesis that just occurred to me, because I've, I've always wondered, why is the Air Force denying all of this when they should be the ones approaching it? Could it be that they're actually investigating it and they're the ones with most of the evidence and publicly they deny it for, you know, plausible deniability or whatever the reason might be? And it was the Navy because most of the planet is composed of water and they are in places around the world. There's absolutely nobody and they can experience these USOs going up and down uh, through the water themselves. And that's why they are the ones behind it. Well, I don't know, because when in 1947, when the whole thing started, they started with Project Sign, and Project mm -hmm. Sign was logical. And they said, you know, maybe these things are beyond our science, and they said, you know, these may be XET and all that. And then the, the government agency went into Grudge, Project Grudge, and Grudge was just like it described. They debunked it, and then it went into Project Blue Book, and in general, Project Blue Book debunked UFOs. And then, um, but I think all through that, the Navy took a more serious look. And I think one, maybe one reason why was because um, the Air Force is sort of responsible for everything that's flying around. And maybe they wanted to not say that things are flying around that people see that they don't know what it is. And maybe the um, Navy wasn't that into it and um, would take a slightly more objective view. But I think the government in general was negative. And I think that probably somebody in the government did know about it. Um, I had just written an article that showed that, uh, for MUFON Journal about disclosure. And this year, some disclosure came out a tiny little bit. But um, in 1953, I was, uh, Battelle, was, Battelle Memorial Institute was doing a study of UFOs, and this was for the Air Force. And Battelle's a big, important scientific uh, organization that has all kinds of um, accolades and everything else. Um, and they probably didn't want anybody to know that they were studying UFOs, but this was for the Air Force for Project Blue Book, and um, at, I was talking about disclosure was is that they were having the Robertson panel meeting, which um, was debunking UFOs. They had a bunch of big scientists and studied UFOs and said there's nothing to it. Everybody's crazy, you know, there's nothing to it at all. And secretly, top secretly at the same time, they were having Battelle study UFOs in a top secret um, study. And so there was a um, something called the Pinnacle Memo that somebody went to a lot of trouble to get out and it didn't get the public the publicity that it ought to. 
but um, it was from Battelle to the Air Force saying that they shouldn't have the Robertson panel because Battelle hadn't finished its study. And so they didn't have data, so why would they have the Robertson panel? But they went right ahead and had the Robertson panel, and that was disclosure back in 1953, and that was a good disclosure because it showed that the government was basically lying. They were having this big disclosure of the Robertson panel saying nothing was happening while they were secretly studying UFOs at Battelle. And I don't think that got nearly the publicity that it should have. I mean, probably because nobody had ever heard of Battelle and things like that. But it was a real good disclosure and maybe better than one they even have today. Well, after so many years of studying all of this, when I think of commissions like the Warren Commission and the 9-11 Commission, uh, what are we supposed to believe, that they're telling us the truth? Same thing with Blue Book. But a quick parenthesis, just, I'm just curious as to what your opinion is of the U.S. Space Force. What do you think the real purpose of the Space Force is? I don't know, because like Reagan was going to start something like that. Yeah. Um, Star Wars, I guess they called it. I don't remember what they called it. And everybody was against it. And now it seems like people are <laughs> dead or something, and nobody's paying attention to it. Um, I don't know. Um, I imagine it's, it has more to do, it has a lot to do with all kinds of other countries, too. And a lot of other countries, a lot more have nuclear weapons and um Missiles and everything. But, you know, it. Um, You're referring to space based weapons, like what Dr. Carol Russin talks about. Yeah, but missiles too. And um, if they have a nuclear war, it'd be devastating for everybody. It wouldn't be like one country fighting another country because if you have an anti missile go up and hits a missile, well, the um, radiation would go all over. And, and, you know, get everybody. So that'd be like mass suicide. So it'd be pretty stupid to have it. So I don't know, you know, why they're having this. And nobody seems to be paying much attention to it either. I don't mean to deviate from the topic. I'm just thinking of, of a, another project called Project Horizon. I believe this was in the 50s or 60s uh, where they were planning to put nuclear weapons or missiles on the moon. And basically launch it from there. But then with the advent of the nuclear submarine, they could launch a, a, a nuclear rocket from anywhere around the world. And they didn't think that spending billions of dollars going to the moon to, to establish there and putting that project was feasible. So I just don't understand. We have nuclear submarines that can deploy all these missiles wherever. And uh, I don't know if this is just more red tape. It's because of the space platforms that... China could be a threat to our so-called satellites, or if indeed they think that there might be an extraterrestrial threat, like what Reagan said, and this is the real reason. Who knows? I mean, what can we believe from their well-intentioned government? Yeah, and I would guess that it has to do with all those reasons. Um, but um, in the case of Pascagoula, well, they were working on nothing nuclear um, facilities there, which I imagine were related to nuclear submarines. And that seemed to be one thing that was touchy with the Navy and why they were interested because they wanted to hide 
that they were nuclear submarines. And this, I mean, I don't know if it was nuclear submarines, but nuclear ships anyway, and I imagine nuclear submarines. But um, they were trying to hide it back then. And now, you know, nuclear submarines are in the news quite a bit now. Uh, for example, the um, thing set up with Australia that irritated the French. Yeah. That not only that, but I, I think uh, there was a was it a Chinese? Yes, I think it was a Chinese or an American submarine that bumped into an unknown object in the Pacific. You heard that? Uh huh. What do you think that was? But I don't know. Well, there's a lot of those reports about the same time as um, the disclosure this year came out. There was a um, airplane over, I think it was New Mexico, that saw something go over too. And it caused a lot of news for a while, and then anybody forgot about it. Um, and I don't think they said any more about it in the news about the submarine either. Well, let me read this, if I might, from an excerpt from your book. It says, the police made runs and even interacted with the UFOs. State governors reported their sightings. Witnesses reported some objects that were underwater. Police chased them. Airplanes were deployed, and authorities photographed them. Fire departments were dispatched for explosions after the booming sound. And we'll discuss the booming sound in a moment. Objects were shattered and many similar strange, even ghastly happenings occurred. Now, when you have all these things happening at the same time, there's, I presume, there was a lot of damage control taking place at the time. But when you have so many government branches reporting this and getting reports from the public, How can you really hide? And if it's been, you know, almost 50 years from the event, are more people coming out saying, yep, I remember that and I have my own experiences. Is this what you're getting into? Yeah, because back then um, there were there were articles that said, you know, they put the abduction and news and, re and ridiculed it all over in order to hide everything else that was going on, you know. Everything else was going on, and they, instead they just reported on that one abduction and said, oh, that's crazy. So they were kind of using that to hide everything else. Um, but there was a whole lot going on, and a lot of people, and um, Charles and Calvin were harassed a lot, too. And um, a lot of the people that were saw that kept their mouths shut. And now there's a you know, a more um, open-mindedness yeah, view. And so people that had experience are, are talking about it. And you wouldn't think that, you know, somebody from 1973, October 11th would remember. But a lot of people had experiences around that time. And they also, um, the abduction was very, very publicized. And so they would remember what happened to them, but they would also have a date for it, which you wouldn't normally remember. And so I think a lot of people are reporting now because it's, they don't get harassed the way they used to. And because they have a date so that they know when it happened too. Let's discuss the sound. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't the loudest sound ever recorded. The Krakatoa volcano eruption at 10 or two in the morning On August 27, 1883, it was heard 3,000 miles away, and it was so loud that the British in India 
thought it was some ship that fired their guns as a signal of emergency. How was it determined that this UFO boom was the second most extensive sound ever recorded of any unexplained event? Oh, I said it was the second most extensive, and that's because it was heard from Iowa to the um, Atlantic coast, mm -hmm. and that's a long ways, and it seemed to be pretty wide, too. And um, so I looked at information in magazines and things about what was the most extensive sound, and that was the second uh, most widespread one I could find. I mean, I don't have it, any you know, precise um, research, but on my own research, that seemed to be the most extensive one so far as covering territory um, next to Krakatoa, which was way more extensive. <laughs> well, then we have also the Tunguska event, and we don't hear that much about what happened in that event. Some people say it was a, a meteorite that crashed. Some people say that it was a, a space explosion. I don't mean to digress again, but did you ever look into the... The, that event at all? I looked into a number of um, strange sounds and had a chapter on strange sounds and one of them was that. Um, I think there's still different opinions on it. Um, there was an explosion. People saw it. It knocked trees down and everything. It had a lot of power. Um, and But it caused a lot of attention because of the physical effects with the trees and everything. Right. And plus people saw something. With this particular sound, nobody saw anything. And so um, it was reported across the country. Uh, but I don't think people paid attention because nobody saw anything, even though there was a huge sound. What did the media report back then? I'm asking you because I remember probably about 10 years ago, in Arizona, or where I am, and in many other places around this the, the states, and even in Europe, people report loud booms. I myself felt once. I, our home has a lot of glass, and we felt the 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 glass almost shattering. And people asking the same thing. You know, they, they go to social media and said, "Hey, did you hear this boom?" And we're talking about people thirty, forty, fifty miles away. Asking the same thing, no answer. They're saying, oh, maybe uh, the military was performing some underground explosions or there was some construction taking place. But when you hear a radius of 50 miles reporting the same thing, it makes you wonder. So the big question is, that loud boom that happened in 1973, what was the sound? What caused it? Well, it was a lot more extensive than um, there were like... Um, First of all, they explained it as an SR-71, which is a big um, reconnaissance airplane that can go um, yeah. three or more times the speed of sound. They don't longer fly it, but it was a real big airplane that um, could fly for a long time. Uh, they explained it with that. <laughs> And, um, however, this sound was way beyond that because – Since then, they've come out with studies of sonic booms and told how far up an airplane has to be to get a certain sound. And if it, you get, um, uh, I mean, there's, I think, 
a mile on the ground for every hundred for every a thousand feet up and things like that. So like if an airplane is at eighty thousand feet, there would be um, forty miles on either side. Well, this sound was much larger than that, and it went from um, Iowa to the Atlantic coast, which was huge. And so at first they were explaining it as caused by an SR-71. But then later they start began explaining it as an um, earth-grazing meteor. No, nobody saw anything. Nobody saw any explosion or anything like these other, um, like the Russian ones. But there was certainly a sound, and it was enough to break windows and things over a three-state area at least. And so um, it it was just much louder than, I mean, more extensive than would be caused by an airplane. Um, when I first studied it, these uh, a number of, ge ge of um, geologists and seismologists helped me scientifically, and they always say science scientists are debunkers. Well, the scientists I knew helped me, but then I published it in the MUFON Journal. And I was debunked there by um, somebody that said, well, it was an SR-71. And I very weakly replied that the sound wasn't where the SR-71 was. But I didn't have too much information. But since then, it's easier to get um, information on newspapers so that you could follow the sound across the country. And also, NASA has published information on um, – how big a sonic boom is and how high an airplane is and how much sound you can hear from here and there and that everything. And I could debunk that a lot more because where the, there was a SR 71 that went across the country then, but it wasn't where the sound was. And, um, the sound was way larger than the airplane would have caused. And so I made a number of diagrams in the book and, calculations on how far away the sound was and how you couldn't possibly be from that airplane. And um, there wasn't any, nothing was seen where the sound was. When it comes to the, the sonic boom, you ref, I think they refer to it as the boom carpet. It's the width that ends up being about, I think, one mile for each 1,000 feet. So if an aircraft is flying at a 50,000 feet, then the sonic boom cone would be about 50 miles. And the Air Star 71, if I remember correctly, is about, what is it, uh, uh, 85,000 feet is the ceiling, I believe. If that's the case, then 85 miles. But you're talking about hundreds of miles away heard this sonic boom. Yeah. Um, and then also the uh, course of that airplane was already known. And so I plotted that on a map, mm. and um, my debunker had drawn this figure and said this was a sound from that airplane. Well, the place where the airplane landed wasn't even on his figure, which makes <laughs> too much sense. But um, the places where the airplane would have flown over, there wasn't much evidence, if any, of anybody hearing a sound. And even in the um, the town closest to where the airport was. Nobody heard anything. And there was a airport person there that said he didn't hear anything. But um, 
many, many miles away was where they heard the sound. And so I had good evidence for why that wasn't from the airplane. You said something interesting there, and I don't want to talk about third parties at all or say anything negative, but isn't it interesting that whenever, sometimes when you go to a MUFON meeting, there's always a debunker there, or most of the time, and it's almost as if they're placed there to debunk anything that's being said. In a few weeks, we'll have George Flyer. He's a veteran of, of the ufology. He's a, a former military with an incredible story. And we finally connected a few weeks ago, and he's going to be coming to us to discuss this very topic of what happens within MUFON and some of these organizations that get infiltrated by people. And it makes you wonder sometimes, you know, why are they placed there? Have you ever thought about that? Well, <laughs> my immediate answer would be Phil Class. And he was a <laughs> yes, Philip Class in meetings and debunk everything. And he would do good research in some places. But um, in other places, he didn't make any sense. And a lot of debunkers didn't sign. They would, they would um, show themselves as scientists. And they would say, we're the scientists. We're saying this. And actually, most of them weren't scientists. Most of them were like writers or something else. Um, and so in the case of this man, though, I had he debunked me in the MUFON journal. I mean, I don't know if he was a MUFON person. He just debunked me. But then I wrote an article and debunked him. But I didn't have as much data as I had now on sonic booms. Um, but um, what one thing I mentioned in the book was is that uh, the diagram he showed of where the sound was. He was saying this was from the airport and de from the airplane debunking, but <laughs> his diagram didn't make any sense at all because it wasn't anything like a sonic boom would actually present itself, and it also wasn't where the airplane was. And so these were <laughs> a few little details that I mentioned in my book that um, I used his own diagram a number of times because it just didn't go along with the facts at all. But he said he had this drawing of the sound and it kind of in a way was covered the sound in a way um and he was saying this was caused by the airplane well the airplane was else, and so i made a point of that what makes it interesting too is all the stories i've ever heard about ufos or whatever label you want to ascribe it to it is that they move obviously their maneuvers are something that no human can replicate. And it's almost as if they have a plasma around them, and this is why we don't hear a sonic boom. And I also say this about the fishermen I've heard from, who said these incredible objects go in and out of the water. They don't make a splash. They've been seen going in and out of volcanoes in Mexico and other parts of the world. So they defy the laws of, of gravity, of physics, so I don't know how I can connect this sonic boom to them. And if that's the case, what do we connect it to? Well, that's why I wanted to, I covered the sonic boom in quite a bit of detail and maybe a little boring, but it was something I could latch onto and scientifically study and I could do the calculations. Um, for example, if an airplane is like 30,000 feet, you can get a big overpressure and it knocks it I mean, a certain amount of overpressure or knockout windows or things. But like if you're 80,000 feet, 
you may not even hear the airplane because it's up there where there aren't many molecules. True. And it's, um, by the width of the sound, the thing would have to be very high. And at that height, there, <laughs> there wouldn't be any sonic boom at all. But it was still breaking windows. So in physics, it just didn't make any sense at all. And I just did a lot of calculations on that because um, it was so strange. So I'm not, I don't think it was a sonic boom. I think it was something else, but I don't know what it was. And nobody saw anything. But, I mean, in answer to your other um, comments, it, um, you know, they seem to go into water and things like that. And we had those observations in this, um, in Pasigul and other places of the things coming out of water and going in water and things. And there's a lot of observations that things go through walls and everything like that. But I think it might bring into question our sense of reality and whether we really, I mean, our sense of reality may be a little bit primitive too. And when these we see these things going in water or down volcanoes, well, in quantum mechanics, there's a lot of things that will go around barriers and through barriers and things like that. And you can get instantaneous speeds and things that just aren't, that we don't think is possible, but it may be that we have a very, very um, primitive view of things, and the UFOs are kind of showing us that maybe things are different than what we think. That would be one theory. And again, I, I keep saying I don't want to deviate, but I'm just picking your brain here because it makes you wonder. We talk about time travel here all the time. Some people say that that's impossible. But I think that anything that you can think of might be possible in the future. And if time travel is possible, what tells us that these are not tourists from the future coming back to take a look at us? And this is why they, they might have some rules saying, and by the way, this is just speculation, you know, some rule of, of not intervention, just experience World War II, experience the crucifixion of Christ, experience what we're going through today as, a, as an observer. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I would say that in quantum, quantum mechanics, there's the theory of the collapse of reality, that when something happens, it, every, everything, including the observer, are part of it. Um, and so I'd say that anything that happens, um, like a time traveler coming back, would have an effect. So I don't know. I'd say if... You know, they're acting like maybe there wouldn't be any effect of this, but there would be. And so I just don't know. I mean, it could be. Let's go back to 1973. Again, as I said, it was a tumultuous year. And if so many people witness these events and the police, fire departments and the government and the the military were all summoned and, and, and notified. It makes me go back to 1938 and the story of, uh, Orson Welles reading the book uh, War of the Worlds that created lots of panic. You would have thought the government learned from that experience. Is this why this story kind of uh, fell through the cracks eventually because they didn't want the panic to persist? Well, there was uh, people nearly did get into a panic. Um, In Pascagoula, the sheriff's office reported they had 
at the night of the abduction, they had 50 other reports that were um, actual reports, and they had a whole lot that they didn't collect, which was a whole lot. But the flap was other places, too, and like in Columbus, Ohio, the dispatch reported 150 reports for one night, which is maybe a record, and it was even more than Pascagoula. Um, so there was a big flap all over, and um, Pascagoula made the news on account of the abduction, and it was kind of um, documented, too. But um, I think there was a lot else going on. Now, the government, seriously, the government, seriously investigated USOs. For some reason, this is one of those areas that we don't hear that much. We have Space Force. We have the Navy. Do we have any force that goes inside of the deeper areas of our planet that are unexplored? I sometimes wonder, may I call you Irina, Dr. Scott? Of course. I sometimes wonder, we're spending all these billions of dollars with NASA all the time, but what have we really discovered in our deepest parts of our own planet? There's life being cataloged and found almost on a daily basis, new species all the time. If you were an extraterrestrial or if you were a different species that really does not want any contact with us, and I wouldn't blame them, what a great place would it be to just hide underground or underwater as deep as you possibly can if you had the technology? Wouldn't be a, that'd be a great place to coexist without really existing with us? Yeah, I mean, I could hide underwater easier than you could hide on Mars because right. you can see the surface of Mars and they're digging, do a little bit of digging too. Um, Earth would be easier to hide in, but they might have the ability to hide right under your nose too. I mean, they might be right here all the time and nobody knows it too. I mean, we may be real primitive in our ability to detect things. And um, that's why they can go through, go underwater and in volcanoes or whatever, because we're primitive and we're not detecting a lot in our environment, maybe. I mean, well, maybe they're here, right here now all the time and just show up once in a while. What were some of the similarities that now that you found that there were other people reporting sightings and abductions during the same time as, as the Spagagula event, what were some of the similarities that have been reported in 1973? Uh, well, for one thing, there was a lot of interaction. Um, like somebody would see a UFO and shine a spotlight on it, and it would disappear and things like that. That happened with the uh, USO, that um, they would hit it with an oar or something that would disappear and turn its lights off and then appear someplace else. And there was a lot of interaction like that. Um, and then people felt that they were being communicated with by mental telepathy and things like that. So that um, there was a lot of interaction and a bit of, quite a bit of the interaction was with authorities. I mean, uh, police and things like that and pilots would take after the things and they would disappear or they would make a swoop down and things like that where there was 
interaction with human authority, which um, seemed different than the usual UFO stories. Now let's get deep now into the Calvin Parker and, and Charles Hickson's story. They said, I believe Calvin said that he uh, was not awake when the beings were around him. He passed out. But eventually he said that he lied because he didn't want the harassment and the ridicule that a lot of people were going through during that time. Now, when did he report that he was actually not passed out? And can you describe what he said? I mean, I know he described a lot during our interview that one of the beings inserted the finger, I believe, inside of his mouth, and he's, he bit it, I believe, if I remember correctly. But take us back to what happened when he was abducted. Well, um, this they had... Um, they were just normal people. They weren't UFO nuts or anything like that. And they were, it was after work and they were going fishing, which lots of people do. And they went to several places, didn't find fish. And then they were in this other place. And it was sort of, I think there was a sign saying it was restricted or something. And it was Calvin's car. And he was worried that the police were going to come after him and he would be in trouble. And so anyway, they went out on this pier and they saw a blue light, and at first they thought it was the police. And Calvin was going to say, well, it's Charles's fault. He can go to jail. But, of course, it was a lot worse than that because it was the object. And um, so the first thing that happened was is that there was a bright light. I guess it opens its door. And then these things came out that seemed to be mechanical. They were like creatures or something, but they seemed to be like mechanical and grabbed them and two of them grabbed Charles and one grabbed Calvin and took them inside and um, did some measurement, did what appeared to be measurements on them and took them back out. Um, well, one thing that was, and so uh, they didn't at first want to report it because everybody call them crazy. You know, if he reports, you know, I've been abducted, what would you do if somebody came in and that something abducted you? Well, nobody would believe you. And Calvin didn't want to report at all, but Charles was older and he had been through the wars and life and death situations, and he decided this should be reported. So they called the, um, they called, uh, the newspaper, and that, it was closed up, and they called the Kessler Air Force Base, and they, Kessler said, well, we don't, the Air Force doesn't collect anything and told them to call local authorities. So they talked to the police and um, the police, you know, he called and said, you won't believe this, but this happened. And the police wouldn't normally take him serious, but they could hear this, could hear Calvin in the background crying and begging him not to say anything. And so they brought him in. And they interviewed him separately and then together and then um, left him by themselves in a room uh, alone together. But what they didn't know was is that there was a tape recorder going and the police department thought, well, they will catch them in this hoax because as soon as they walk out, well, Calvin and Charles will start joking and saying, well, we really put him over. Well, that didn't happen because they were both terrified and they were both talking about it. It was sort of, it wasn't like they rehearsed or anything else. They were just talking and really terrified. 
and so the tape showed that um, that Calvin had seen something too, and that's why they had a lot of credibility was because of that mystery tape because they typed they taped him when they didn't know he was around and they were still just in shock and terrified. And just describe again what they found inside of the ship. I know there were, there were bright lights. They couldn't determine where the lights were coming from. It was a blue haze. Just describe as best as you can. Well, um, one thing uh, that was different was is that usually aliens are pictured as slender things with legs and the grace. big heads and big eyes and everything like that. Well, these didn't look anything like that. They were sort of the opposite. They were pudgy little things that wrinkled. They didn't seem to have legs. They seemed to float on a pedestal and things. And that isn't anything normal in UFO descriptions. So if you want something that would suggest that they were telling the truth, that would be it. Because, you know, if they were lying, they would probably look up what an alien looks like. But this was, you know, a lot different. And then in the... um, in the object, they describe these – well, first of all, when they these things came out and grabbed them, well, they were terrified. I mean, which anybody would be, and they were men, and they – you know, anybody would be fighting back. Well, what happened to them was is that they both um, were kind of like they were paralyzed, but it was like um, – it wasn't like – well, they thought they had been – given a shot or something it was like you know when you get an operation well suddenly you're out but um in this case it was different different from anesthesia back then because they were conscious but they couldn't move and so whatever happened to them i mean they got real relaxed all of a sudden and they thought they were given a shot and they couldn't fight back but they could move their eyes and they were conscious and that's a sedation that happens now like with fentanyl and things, but I don't, I think back then sedation put you out. And when they were inside, um, they described something that some instrument was like, they were giving pictures of being scanned and things. This thing came out of the wall and circled around them. And this was kind of like a cat scan today, but today that's more complicated because they put you on a gurney and, shove you in this machine but in this case there was just something little that came out from the wall and scanned them and so um it was like uh, newer scientific advances and um what they had in 1973 that they were describing what about the description of the beings they were totally different and as you mentioned we usually hear about these slender looking beings with long arms and maybe four fingers and the grays with the black eyes. That's what we usually, would you say the majority of sightings report that type of being among, you know, others, the plain praying mantis and, and some others, but here they're very non-traditional. They, they had like a three carrot like growths in their heads, I believe. Yeah. The protrusions on a normal person's head are like the ears and the nose. And they had sort of carrot-like things instead of anything that looked like an ear and a nose. And when it comes to the purpose, I'm always curious about what the purpose was. Did Calvin or Charles ever report what the purpose of this was, or did they just stay with the doubt forever? I mean, they were adopted, uh, abducted, 
they were hurt because they reported that they felt pain. But what was the reason behind it? Did they? Did you ever find out? I don't remember. They had a hypnosis session on both of them, and I don't remember if there was any explanation. Uh, Calvin was scared for a long, He didn't talk about it for like 50 years, and he was scared they would come back and do something to him, which might have been like a post-hypnotic suggestion or something. But um, I don't remember if there was any explanation of purpose or not. And when you were called by Philip, Mantle to uh -huh. conduct these interviews. These people that are coming forward now, did they not report anything back then for the same reasons that many people don't want to report even today? They don't want to go through the ridicule. I mean, pilots, they're told if they have a sighting, they should never say anything uh, publicly because that is grounds for termination, among other things that they cannot disclose. Many professions. If you're a businessman, an attorney, a doctor, and you start talking about this quote-unquote nonsense in most people's minds, you lose your credibility and maybe even your livelihood. So the people they interviewed, did they report anything back then or did they wait until Calvin's books were published before they came out? Well, several people said that they didn't report because of the things that happened to Calvin and Charles. Um, and also... Um, they always say scientists don't see UFOs. It just does nuts see UFOs. Well, I think scientists see just as many UFOs as anybody else does, but they would be in a lot more trouble for reporting it. So I think there's a lot less reporting from people in professions just for that reason. That's a very interesting comment that you just made about scientists don't see UFOs, nuts do. And I always told, tell the story of a cousin of mine who died years ago. I, I was younger. I was about you know, 13, 14, and he was already older. He was an aerospace engineer. And one day I just decided to ask him, so do you think that there's extraterrestrial life here? And he said, well, the question is, if, it, if they're here, how did they travel here? And if the closest star of Proxima Centaurus is, uh, you know, X number of light years. That means that they would have had to come here at the speed of light, which would be impossible in a craft. So a scientist just reads from the same script that, that they were taught by academia. And you know that, you, you come from academia. So how can we expect scientists to move forward if all they know is the current paradigm? which says it is impossible to travel beyond the speed of light. And not until now are we discussing quantum physics. Well, actually, quantum physics has been known for about 100 years, but nobody paid too much exactly. attention to it. But with um, the entangled particle, well, they're doing experiments where um, the, an entangled particle in one state can instantaneously know its other particle paired or entangled particle at any distance. I mean, they haven't gone across the universe, but theoretically one could be on one side of the universe and the other on the other side, and they would instantly know what state the other one's in, and they've shown that that's true. I mean, not for across the universe, but um, quantum mechanics, so I don't think it's, I think that we don't understand reality very well, and that quantum mechanics shows us a 
totally different reality than what we know about. Um, and that we have limits that probably aren't true for everything. And our view of the universe may be real, real primitive. We have to take a one and only break. But when we come back, I really want to discuss, get deeper and discuss some of the unique elements that had not been reported before. And as I mentioned, to anyone who wants to learn more about the Pascagoula event and the Calvin Parker's interview that we did in 2018, feel free to go to our website. You can listen to it there. And I want to discuss what was not discussed during that interview, the unique elements that you have been able to uncover now. How can people buy the new book, Dr. Scott, uh, Beyond Pascagoula, the rest of the amazing story? It's on um, Amazon.com, just say Beyond Pascagoula, and it should appear. It's on my website, irenascott.com, and also I'll be giving a talk at the uh, UFO Mega Conference in um, Nevada in March. And I'll be giving detailed information with uh, graphs and everything there. So my book is on Amazon.com. Just say Beyond Pascal and it should show up. I don't think anybody else has that name. Are these, out of curiosity, are these events now, the conferences, in person again? Or are they still doing teleconferencing? This is supposed to be in person, finally. Excellent. I'm so glad that at least we have some level of, of normalcy. And by the way, I used to say normality. I don't know where these words are coming from. It's like, uh, what do you call that uh, Mandela effect? I hear these words now, nor- normalcy. Anyway, we are here with Dr. Irina Scott. Much more when we come back. This is Mel Hasselrich, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest, and all of our material, proceed to the member section, or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting, Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS. CBD pure hemp oil, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.